Don't you just hate it when you finally manage to shut down the San Onofre nuclear reactors and you're looking for an equitable settlement agreement between the California Public Utilities Commission and Southern California Edison, only the bulk of the expense is being carried on the shoulders of the ratepayers because the fix was in ahead of time and you learn... Michael Peavy, the head of the CPC, and then some of the executives at Southern California Edison met in Warsaw, Poland in secret, non-allowed meetings to go over the business points of the settlement deal that pretty much went forward. When you hear things like that, and there's a lot more where that came from, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are stuck in the seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. The weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we catch up with all the developments post-shutdown at San Onofre Nuclear Power Plant and learn how Google Earth may be the anti-nuclear movement's inadvertent star supporter. We talk with Ray Lutz of Citizens Oversight and Gary Hedrick of San Clemente Green on the current lawsuit and sudden shift in Southern California Edison's stance on the settlement agreement that didn't make ratepayers very happy. Then a touching report from Kerry Ann O'Connor in Tokyo, on the problems facing the children of Fukushima as social structures break down and their traumas from the earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear meltdowns remain unresolved. Plus, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, the duck and cover report on what's happening at those crumbling U.S. nuclear reactors, plus news, attitude, and more honest nuclear information than showed up at last Sunday's White House Easter egg hunt. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, April 18, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off in southwestern Japan, where on Thursday, April 13, the Saga Prefectural Assembly voted to accept the restart of two reactors at Kyushu Electric Power Company's Genkai Nuclear Power Station. Saga Governor Yoshinora Yamaguchi said he will make his final judgment as early as this month on whether his prefecture should approve the restart. The mayor and the town assembly of Genkai, the host municipality of the power plant, have already given it the green light. Oi! And Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, is now aiming to restart the Kashiwazaki Kariwa nuclear plant in Niigita Prefecture as of April of 2019. Restarting the giant facility is considered important to Tokyo Electric Power Company Holding Inc.'s ability to recover financially from the triple meltdown at the Fukushima nuclear plant in March of 2011. 
but the prospects for rebooting the reactors are dim because it is opposed by Niigata Governor Ryuichi Yoniyama. Hold fast, Governor Yoniyama. Hold fast. A survey by Japan's education ministry has found more than 200 cases of bullying involving children who fled Fukushima Prefecture after the nuclear disaster in March of 2011. The ministry surveyed more than 11,800 school age evacuees, but the survey attributes fewer than 10% of the cases to the accident, prompting the education minister to admit the need for further studies. Yeah, think? One pupil was told to go back to Fukushima soon after entering elementary school. Classmates also told a junior high school student to stay away because radiation is contagious. We'll have more on the problems that are faced by the children who evacuated from Fukushima during the interview portion of this week's show. This story is Numbnuts Adjacent and Just Missed. International Atomic Energy Agency Chief Yukaya Amano. Has called for international cooperation in the decommissioning of the Fukushima nuclear complex. How often do I have to say that you cannot decommission a wreck, you can only decommission an intact reactor? Be that as it may, Amano said, it is important to gather as much knowledge as possible from around the world and engage in the decommissioning with the cooperation of the global community. Gee, wouldn't it have been nice if you had done this?、Mm. Six years ago? Amano said, getting the international community to work together will serve as a good reference, that's the word he used, in the event other countries carry out their own decommissioning work. In other words, if they have their own melting down nuclear reactors and are going hysterical trying to find out what in the world to do, and maybe they don't have anybody on staff as good as Masao Yoshida was, the late Masao Yoshida. But numb nuts as that is, it's nowhere near the real one. Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, numb nuts of the week. World Nuclear News, that source of so many prime numb nuts stories, had a headline this week that reminded me of the old joke Doctor, it hurts when I do that, so don't do that. The headline. Nuclear's fate in Japan depends on public acceptance. So, public, don't accept it. And the majority of them don't. But try convincing Takahashi Imai, the Japan Atomic Industrial Forum chairman. He said in a keynote speech at their conference in Tokyo the debate about energy policies in Japan was, quote, thrown into confusion following the accident at the Fukushima Daiichi plant. Confusion? I think it was thrown into a much bigger pile of doo doo than that. Imai said, From here, will nuclear power in Japan just be allowed to decline, not to be needed anymore, and be replaced with other types of energy? And I'm thinking to myself, Yes! Yes! Of course, Imai did not agree. He said nuclear power is indispensable to Japan, as it is a Very important power source from the viewpoint of the three E's energy security, economy, and, wait for it, environmental protection, all based on the premise of, wait for it, safety. From which alt facts Trumpian corner of the universe does this guy pull his information? Ultimately, he talks about decommissioning measures for Fukushima Daiichi as an activity which is capturing the world's attention. Dude, 
we've been paying attention for six years and counting. And that's why you, Takahashi Imai, are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. And you can only decommission an existing operating nuclear reactor. What you're doing at Fukushima is mitigating a disaster and not particularly well. How many times do I have to say it? Moving right along to the United States, in Massachusetts, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is proving how it got the nickname Nuclear Rubber Stamp Commission. Despite all of the problems at the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant and plans to permanently shut it down as of June of 2019, the NRC has allowed for a final refueling to take place at Pilgrim. 168 highly radioactive fuel assemblies, about one-third of those in the reactor, are being taken out, removed by crane one by one through a water-filled canal, and into the adjacent spent fuel pool, where about 3,000 other spent assemblies are currently cooling. According to Energy spokesmodel Patrick O'Brien, to prevent a nuclear reaction from occurring, workers had to rearrange the fuel assemblies in the pool due to deterioration to the neutron-absorbing panels installed on pool racks. What else could go wrong? An evaluation in December projected about 900 of the panels will be in danger of deterioration by September. David Noyes, director of recovery at Pilgrim, what, it's in a 12-step program? Noyes said, workers are being carefully monitored for radiation levels during refueling. Quote, because of the nature of the work, more radiation doses received by workers who will be accessing areas not usually accessed. And then there's this interesting factoid. Noyes said, while the reactor is shut down, the level of radiation outside the plant is even lower than it normally is. That means that he admits that radiation leaks during operation of Pilgrim. But wait, there's more. Only two days after that story appeared, Entergy Corporation found out from the NRC that it will not be required to install upgrades to a heavy-duty vent system at Pilgrim capable of operating and preventing explosions in meltdown conditions. Federal regulators also gave Entergy a pass on requirements to reevaluate risk of earthquakes and floods. No word of how close the NRC's lips came to proximity of Entergy's posterior, though we are tracking down the rumors. Pilgrim's reactor is the same GE Mark I design as the reactors of Fukushima, and by order issued by the NRC in 2013, the installation of the vent system became mandatory for all U.S. GE Mark I and II boiling water reactors, except, apparently, when it isn't. Note that the reliable hardened containment vents are capable of operation under severe accident conditions. Plant licensees were given until June of 2018 to complete installation of these hardened vent systems, but in June... The plant owner-operator Entergy asked to have an extension on the requirement until December of 2019. Since the reactor is set to close permanently in June of 2019, the extension is, in essence, an exemption. Pilgrim Watch, a citizens group that had petitioned the NRC for a public hearing on Entergy's extension request, was told last week its petition was denied. Group President Mary Lambert said, 
when it's economic health of the industry versus public safety, economic interests will trump. I'm sure that wasn't an accidental choice of words. Chicago's Nuclear Energy Information Service and its head, Dave Kraft, have made us aware of the arrest of two alleged ISIS supporters holding the ISIS flag while standing in front of the welcome sign for the Illinois Beach State Park in Zion, Illinois. What is not being reported about this incident is that those dramatic photos were taken a 10-minute walk south of the 1,000-plus tons of high-level radioactive waste being stored at Exelon's Zion Nuclear Power Station. These wastes are extremely hazardous should they be released into the environment by accident or terrorist intent. I wonder if those idiots knew it or they were just riffing on the word Zion. Finally, and cover. Too many to get them all, but just two. At Hatch in Georgia, a problem was created by poor work instruction, leading to a piece not being installed as required. And Salem in New Jersey was taken offline to minimize radiation exposure when personnel operated the isolation valves because they were in a cloud of steam. <coughs> we'll have today's featured interviews in just a moment, but first... Well, a girl's best laid plans. I was hoping to drive up to Las Vegas this weekend to cover Saturday's Native American Forum on Nuclear Issues being held at the University of Las Vegas. I even announced it on last week's show and asked for donations to cover the expenses. However, I've managed to do something to my back that makes a drive of that length mm, contraindicated for the foreseeable future. Now, if you donated to Nuclear Hot Seat to support that trip, you can request a refund and I will definitely grant it. Or you can let me apply the funds to other aspects of the show, like website maintenance, the recent project getting rid of 28,000 spam comments from two weeks was a lot of fun. There's also funding needed for the social media campaign or banking it for future travel. As I remind you every week, Nuclear Hot Seat is listener-supported and relies on your donations to keep operating. So thank you for being willing to support this trip. There will be others in the future to cover nuclear issues, events, and conferences so I can bring you the news. So if you feel like helping, go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the big red Donate button, and give what you can. Know that whatever amount you can offer is deeply appreciated. And by the way, I may not be attending the conference, but I'll be putting together a report to let you know what Native American tribal people have to say about uranium mining in the Grand Canyon, the proposed nuclear waste disposal dump at Yucca Mountain, and much, much more. So keep listening. And again, thanks for your support. Just because you get a nuclear reactor shut down doesn't mean that you can kick back and relax, because a whole new set of problems begins as active operations end. That's what you'll learn in this update report on San Onofre. The nuclear reactors on the Southern California coast were shut down in 2013, but the problems and conflicts there are far from over. It's a saga worthy of a Hollywood movie. It's got satire, slapstick, pathos, and skullduggery, along with heart, anger, and more than a few tears. Maybe George Clooney and his team could take it on. In any event, to bring you up to date, 
I spoke with two activists who have been in this battle for the long haul. First, we spoke with Ray Lutz of Citizens Oversight Project. Ray brought his engineering background to bear on the successful battle to keep the San Onofre reactors shut down. He now monitors the actions of the California Public Utilities Commission, or CPUC, on the final settlement on San Onofre, and is a plaintiff in a lawsuit attempting to rein in the current highly finagled settlement on behalf of utility ratepayers in Southern California. Ray Lutz, always great to have you here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. San Onofre was shut down permanently as of June of 2013, in part because of the work of activists and organizations such as yours. Briefly explain to the listeners what the situation was at the San Onofre site when it shut down. They sprang a leak in one of the steam generators due to a misdesign, and that happened January 31st, 2012. The other steam generator was down for a refueling outage, and they were going through inspections. So both of them were out. And then they actually found that both of them had really unusual wear in these brand new steam generators that normally should have zero wear. And instead, they had an incredible number of tubes that they had to plug right away, like 800 in each one. So it was really, really high. That is unprecedented. Then they tried to restart Unit 2, which was the other you know, so-called good one that didn't spring a leak at 70%. And the reason they wanted to do that was just so they could fire it up and say that it was still running because there's a different treatment at the CPUC if it's still running. And the CPUC is the California Public Utilities Commission. Yeah, that's a regulator that regulates what they can earn and so forth in these plants. And there's a rule there that says that if you're out of commission for nine months, then you have to go into an investigation as to whether or not this plant should be taken out of rates. The nine months expired, and so in October, they had a meeting saying, let's go have an investigation. They still tried to restart Unit 2 at 70% until June 6, 2013. They shut it down permanently. And then they had this investigation to find out who should pay for the shutdown. A settlement was negotiated only with turn. The Office of Ratepayer Management, which is the official representative for the ratepayers, that actually is part of the CPUC. And those are the only two non-utility parties. This was announced, and then all of the other parties got to talk about it. And the CPUC had this very short meeting to discuss the $3.3 billion shutdown price. And that was about 90 minutes. And the $3.3 billion fell on the so shoulders of? That's on the shoulders of the ratepayers. So the ratepayers are going to pay the $3.3 billion to... Southern California Edison, because they managed to cause the plant to fail. <laughs> yeah, the $3.3 billion is our cost to pay to them. For their mistakes and their misdesign. Yeah, but their rationale is that, gee, we don't get to make a lot of money on plants like this if they last a long time. Let's say a hydroelectric dam. They might put it in and, and get, it, get all their money back with their profit margin, which is really very high. And then they say, yeah, but it ran for 100 years. And we only got profit on the first 20. And so they say on those cases, we didn't get to make as much. So where there's an unusual shutdown, we should get all of our money back, plus probably some profit. That's their view. What we're, our view is that if it was their fault that it failed, and so the ratepayer should not be on the hook for this white elephant plant we have here that's not generating any power. We're still paying for it, even though the power is not generating anything. 
But there's more interesting things that happened here. After the settlement was approved in, at the end of 2014, we learned that there were secret meetings held just before the settlement was started. At the early part of this, like in 2013, so it, was, it failed in 2012, 2013, they had these secret meetings. Michael Peavy, the head of the CPC, and then some of the executives at Southern California Edison met in Warsaw, Poland, in secret, non-allowed meetings to go over the business points of the settlement deal that pretty much went forward with that, okay? So, in other words, the fix was in? The fix was in at that point. The only reason we found out about this was because we had the San Bruno gas explosion disaster, which killed eight people and destroyed 24 homes in September of 2011. And that was an investigation that included fatalities. So they were really investigating that. And involved in that, they searched Michael Peavy's home. And the top drawer of his desk was this note that said RSG notes. And we didn't know what RSG meant. But as we looked at it, the reporter here in San Diego, Jeff McDonald, really put the dots together that that RSG meant replacement steam generator. He had the notes in the top of his drawer. He had kept them. So it was proof that he had negotiated this deal with Southern California Edison outside of the official meetings. Then, after that was revealed, we went through, well, they had bad meetings, so we we're going to sanction them. That was all of 2015. And all of 2016 was looking over the case again and seeing what we want to do. And now in 2017, we're back in settlement negotiations to redo that. And that's actively in process, and it's confidential, so I can't tell you what's going on in the settlement meetings, except that it has been officially announced that a mediator has been selected, Lane Phillips. He's a former judge, and he negotiated the deal with the NFL concussion case. So he's a big-time mediator that's used to really, really big cases like this. And so we think that he's going to really help this move forward. And that move to mediation was in part because of a win that Mike Aguirre and his law firm had about, what was it, three weeks ago now? Yeah, you're right. Before the settlement was approved, Mike and I talked about it. We said, man, this stinks to high heaven. And so we knew that there was something going on. We didn't have the RSG note yet. We didn't know that there was illegal meetings. We said, everything looks bad. So let's sue them. In federal court, citizens' oversight became the plaintiff of that case, and that's in federal court. And then it went up to the Ninth Circuit, which is where it is now. The only reason they're really in settlement negotiations now is because they have this federal case hanging over their head. See, that's like a class action suit. So the courts are going to review to see if the elements of the negotiated settlement measure up to see that the ratepayers are being treated properly. That's hanging over their head. I think that we're going to be seeing pretty substantial movement in the amount of money that they're getting out of this. Big picture, they're putting the ratepayers over the hot coals on this. There's no way that we should be paying anywhere close to the $3.3 billion. I think it's more like we should be paying something on the order of $500 million, and that's just for the power that we normally would have purchased at the time, and we did purchase. It was a little bit higher rates, but... I think that that we should just ignore and pay whatever the rates were at the time at the market price. So I think it should go down and the rate payer should get another $2.75 billion refund. That whole case, which has to do, I think, pretty good summary of where it is with regard to the money of the shutdown. But there's another whole segment here, which is the decommissioning part and the nuclear waste situation. Let's get into this part of it. The shutdown 
left behind 3.6 million pounds of radioactive nuclear waste. What was Southern California Edison's plan, I almost want to put that in quotes, for taking care of this radioactive legacy? What they proposed so far is to put this in an underground storage installation. They call it an ISFSI, Independent Spent Fuel Storage Installation, ISFSI. But you can think of it as a dry cast storage facility. And they're planning to bury this underground, basically in the very fragile bluffs of this beach area, within 100 feet of the ocean, and only really inches if you calculate it out over the high water mark. It is really insane to put this right next to the ocean like that. So there's the spent fuel, which I think is the largest issue, but let me just mention really quickly, the decommissioning project is a $4.4 billion project to remove the entirety of the plant and return it to general purpose use. Not that I would recommend that people go there a lot, but at least they would be trying to get rid of it. That's $4.4 billion. This other part, it's less than $500 million for this ISFC. It's not a money thing. It has to do with where they're putting it. And it's something they would not discuss anywhere. The CPC hearings, they would not let us bring up where it's being placed. And so they have kind of these decommissioning projects. It's a really big problem. I think it's going to be a problem nationwide because they don't really let you see what's going on with the decommissioning much at all. It's like a black box. You get to see the money that's being spent. And to them, it's just like a big you know, giant piggy bank. You know, four point four billion is a lot of money, and if you have that much money there, the wolves come in and they're really good at ripping you off. Problem though with this spent fuel storage installation right next to the beach is so many issues. This is probably the worst place to put it. So close to the ocean, with a climate change and ocean level rise, and if there's any earthquake, they say the, the level of the ground is going to go down, and so the water is going to become inundated, plus tsunamis. You have a terrorist threat, which maybe is even worse. You could just come in from the ocean and lob a little bomb over there and have a dirty bomb result. And then you have this whole thing subject to ocean salt air corrosion because it's so close to the ocean. Then, of course, it's just next to the high population areas. The real risks probably are just in handling, you know, any kind of mistakes that are made, either in handling, they drop one. Or they put it in there, they didn't realize it was going to corrode so fast, and then we have these canisters that are cracking and breaking, and they had to seal it over. And there's a speculation on their part that the Yucca Mountain storage facility will be available very soon, which really everyone I talk to says there's no way that's ever going to open because the lawsuits are just, there's so many issues with it. Take that out of your thinking process. It's not going to open based on those lawsuits unless they just like force it in and to say we're going to be putting it in there no matter how insane it is. So we're, what happened was we had a very secret meeting by the Coastal Commission to approve the permit to install this. They let us have about one week notice. It was not notified at the community engagement panel that they were doing it. We had one 90-minute meeting where the public was given two minutes each to say something, and there was no structured way that we could object to it. So basically, it was rammed down your throats. Yeah, it was rammed down our throats. And they actually had a press release go out before the end of the meeting saying that they had voted to approve it. <laughs> they were so <laughs> sure of how it was going to go. They didn't even take the vote in the meeting. I had to complain and say, please take a roll call vote. They were just going to say, oh, it looks unanimous. So anybody against having it be unanimous? 
oh, someone has an add-on, you want something? It says, well, that one's already taken care of, so I'd like to talk about something else. I said, wait a second, I want a roll call vote. Hey, you're not supposed to be talking, member of the public. Get out of here. But once you say that, they have to do a roll call vote because it's so ridiculous not to vote on it. You know? mm-hmm. I want to hear each one's name and whether they vote on it so that they're put on the burner. So what happened was immediately after this, I talked to Mike and Mia and said, let's file a lawsuit. And we did so. What, you have to go to that meeting and object to file a lawsuit. You, you have to be there or you can't file it. We tried to collect people as many as possible to come in on us. You know, the trouble is even the Sierra Club came out at this meeting with a letter, you know, this guy Glenn Pascal from the Sierra Club saying, yeah, we support this. The Sierra Club supported what exactly? The building of this ISTASI only 100 feet from the ocean. I said, I cannot believe it. Of course, then you find out there's infighting within the Sierra Club. They don't really agree with this guy. He's trying to speak for the entirety of the Sierra Club. They also had ex-party meetings, which are normally not allowed. More than half of the members of the commission met privately with the utility to put this thing through. It makes you wonder, why are they trying to put this through so fast and get it through so no one can see it? One of the things that I think looks very, very suspicious is that they're putting this isfasi 100 feet from the ocean, but you have to ask yourself, why? Why wouldn't they choose someplace that's a little bit further away? Well, that's the site of the former Unit 1 reactor, and they're putting it on top of the Unit 1 reactor so that they can cover up any of the stuff that happened of that Unit 1 reactor. There's probably all radioactive dirt and everything around there. That's So they had these little tents over it, too, to, to make it look like there was, I guess, key people away from the area. Unit 1 was the first reactor that was decommissioned in the 80s and 90s. It's gone. But that site where the Unit 1 reactor still has a lot of cement and other infrastructure under the ground, and I imagine... A whole bunch of radioactive discharge and contamination in that site. So what they wanted to do was cover it over with a slab and then put this isfasi on top of it so that all of those skeletons would be buried for a very, very long time. So what was the nature of the case you brought with this aspect of the problem at San Onofre? The case here is called a complaint for declaratory relief and um, writ of mandate which is basically saying, we don't think you were following the law. We want you to stop what you're doing and cause you to follow it. And basically, we're trying to block the permit. And we do it under the grounds that this was a ridiculous procedure. I mean, no one was notified. We didn't really have any opportunity to really comment on this. Plus, it's just ridiculous. I mean, it's insane for the Coastal Commission to approve this nuclear waste dump only 100 feet from the water. I mean, come on now. And as I say, I believe that Southern California Edison, there's ulterior motives here about why they're putting it in. We're not sure what those are. I can only speculate. 2016, they went through just legal shenanigans back and forth trying to dismiss it and let it go forward and always this fighting between the attorneys. Finally, late last year, Judge Judith Hayes said this can go forward. And so we were going to have our hearing on... First, it was the 30th of March, and then it was moved up to the 14th of April. All the briefs went in, had what I think a very strong case, pointing out that this cannot go there. And I think the judge is very, very good. So at that point, the utility said, okay, we'll go along. Let's file a stipulation where all sides agree that we're going to enter a settlement process. Now, the settlement process itself 
is governed by the elements of the evidence code, so it has to be confidential. Mostly anything that they expose, I mean, we have no information to expose that we're worried about on our side. It would be anything that they expose, they may not have to reveal that. So it's another secret process. Well, it's somewhat secret, but it is the process that's part of the legal structure, and we have to respect that. The thing is, is that 97% of cases do settle, and the other 3%, probably two-thirds of those, try to settle, and then it's only the 1% that go directly to, to trial. So it would be really unusual for this to go directly into that hearing. I think settlement can be a really good way to handle it, because then what we can talk about is not just to block the permit, but what do you do with the fuel other than that? So this is not a just say no thing. It's you have to say no and yes. You have to say yes to something else. This whole ring of fire around the Pacific Ocean is no place for anything nuclear. In fact, I think nothing nuclear should be built at all. But if you were going to be building nuclear waste facility, which we have to build because we now have all of this waste, you should not be doing it right on the right on the ocean edge on the ring of fire where 90% of the earthquakes occur. It's just stupid. There are other places to put it. In the lawsuit, they targeted specifically the Palo Verde plant over near Phoenix as one option. But all the options are going to be on the table, except that we're not accepting that it will be stored here. That means it has to be kept in the fuel pools for longer. Those fuel pools are at ground level. They're not three stories up like the ones at Fukushima. They do have to be actively cooled with a refrigerator system. But they were supposed to be there for another 40 years. So it's not like we're pushing the envelope on having them be there maybe for a few more years while we do the paperwork to decide on a better place to put this stuff. We want to get it moved from this location because this location is just way, way too dangerous for it. There was a really dramatic photo that came out of Google Maps. It's one thing to say that these casks are going to be 100 feet from the ocean. It's another to have an overhead shot where you go, you mean that's how close 100 feet actually is? Yeah. And right. my perception from the outside is that this had some major influence on people's understanding of the issue and a sense of urgency about working with that. First of all, is my observation true? And second of all, who was the person who spotted that updated Google Maps and made it available to us all? I don't really know the answer to that last question because it could have been anybody that noticed it. I'm not sure who, who did it first, but you're right in that that image really um, caught fire in terms of stimulating people. I mean, I knew where it was going to go, so it wasn't any kind of revelation to me. So I was happy to see that other people were taking an interest in this. And that did bring up the case that people go, WTF, you know, what's going on here? I didn't know about this. And yeah, no one did because it's been in private. We've been trying to get the word out, but it's been a year and a half. And there's only so much you can do over a year and a half to try to get people to follow it for that long. It's such a long run. Meanwhile, the Southern California Edison is trying to, you know, put the lid on it. We are going into the settlement process, but to make sure that the public is still involved, we're committed to conducting a set of public town hall-like meetings where we would collect all the information from the public and bring it in and make sure all the issues are addressed. Because we've never had an opportunity, really, to affect this at all, except for that one 90-minute meeting. 
And so now we have the settlement process where it's more than just the attorney's briefs going in. We're going to be able to go there and bring in all the information that we get from the public and make sure that their issues, ideas, thoughts, plans, anything that they have about what the way to do this can be input into the settlement process. So we're planning those right now. It's probably going to happen in the next few weeks or months as we move forward from here. Ray, I wish you every success with this campaign. Thanks for waging it so long, so diligently, and so ferociously. Congratulations to Mike Aguirre, who never returns my phone calls, but oh well, he's an attorney in the middle of some cases. And thanks again for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. Really appreciate your work on getting the word out. Appreciate it. Ray Lutz of Citizens Oversight Project. You can read up on all the ins and outs of the San Onofre story at citizensoversight.org slash nonukedump. And, of course, we will have a link up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 304. Also involved in activist work towards a more equitable, unrigged settlement with Southern California Edison is Gary Hedrick of San Clemente Green one of the groups that is working closely with Ray Lutz. He also gives us an insight to the source of that Google Earth, not Google Maps, picture that has been so influential. Gary Hedrick, so great to have you back on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having me. Gary, your group, San Clemente Green, has been involved in protests at San Onofre and other venues dealing with the shutdown. So many years after the actual shutdown, what has your group been doing? Our group has been pushing hard to get the waste management under control and out of control of Edison because the plan they've come up with is totally unacceptable. It's ended up becoming a legal issue, taken to the courts, and now Edison has, for some reason, backed out of the court proceeding long enough to want to negotiate with us. And to me, that means they have something to lose in court. They wouldn't normally just choose to negotiate. So... While they're in that process, we're amping up public pressure to leverage this negotiation to have the best outcome possible. And maybe the better way to say that is the least worst solution, because there's really not any good answers that we know about there. There's only ones that are better than what Edison's proposing. From my perspective, the turning point, the recent turning point in people's awareness of the problems with San Onofre came, I believe, with the recent Google Earth photo showing clearly how close the proposed storage is to the ocean. It's one thing to say it's 100 feet away. It's another thing for people to look at it, and a picture is worth a 1,000 words. What do you know about how this most recent Google Earth picture was found? Who found it, and how is it made so widely available to the community and the media? Well, that's absolutely the case. The image really sparked a fire that's been heating up ever since just a few weeks ago. And I attribute that to the discovery that Darren McClure made, the recent satellite photo updates of the power plant through the Google Earth satellites reveals just exactly what's going on there presently. Regardless of how much we say and do and try to convey the proximity to the ocean and how ridiculous this plan is, there's really nothing like a picture. And saying a thousand words or more has been what we've experienced. And gratefully, 
the timing has been perfect because we really need that kind of motivation in the public right now. During the negotiations between our side and Southern California Edison about what to do with the waste, which is, of course, the question that plagues all things nuclear everywhere in the world because there really is no place to put the waste and no way to treat it so that it's harmless without revealing any private or privileged information. What do you know about what's going on in terms of figuring out a place to put the waste and your thoughts on how appropriate or inappropriate those solutions might be? Well, let me say it this way. The current plan is just unacceptable in everyone's eyes that sees it. And the way forward may have some to do with the negotiations going on. We're hopeful that one of the results of negotiating with Edison might be that they'll do something similar to what was done in Vermont Yankee at that power station. They were trying to relicense for 20 years, had a lot of public outcry, and the solution was to create an independent panel of nuclear experts to analyze the situation and report back on what they felt were concerns that needed to be addressed. So even though the industry paid for this study, they had no influence over who was on the panel and how they deliberated or how much money or time or hours or expenses were required. That's a pretty pure situation where we'd want to be here at San Onofre. The fact is, Edison has been lying to us for years, and the more we try to give them the benefit of the doubt, the more disappointed we become. And this instance is just too important to get the waste issue wrong. I think San Onofre could be the example that the rest of the nation will follow, and I think it's really important for us to get it right. And no one is going to be confident in the outcome if we don't have faith in the people that really know what's going on and We'll do what's in the public's interest and not what's in the interest of this dying industry that seems headed for bankruptcy. And all they want to do is get out as fast as possible and leave us holding the bag. Moving forward, what are some of the actions and activities that San Clemente Green is planning on participating in? We are um, looking forward to continuing the momentum that's built in the public and grassroots efforts. The way we intend to do that is to have more frequent public meetings with people that we trust as experts who answer questions directly to the public without the interference of the industry. To continue relationships that we've built with other people, many of which were involved in the shutdown effort. As time erodes the momentum, we feel that momentum coming back. The public needs to become informed and they need to realize that no one's looking out for them except we're looking out for each other. And that's what happened in the shutdown, and I can feel it happening again. From your mouth to somebody's ears, Gary Hedrick of San Clemente Green. The website for the group is going through some changes, so if you wish to contact Gary and get on the list for regular email updates on what's happening, send an email to him at gary at sanclementegreen.org. Now let's shift to the other side of the Pacific. Carrie Ann O'Connor was my guest on Nuclear Hot Seat number 297, which was posted on February 28, 2017. She's an American-born resident of Tokyo and has lived there for almost 30 years. She volunteers in the Fukushima evacuation zone, helping to rescue abandoned pets, and also heads a nonprofit that provides foot baths, hand massages, and a gentle supportive ear 
to evacuees from the former and current evacuation zones. Because she has such close contact with those still deeply impacted by the triple disaster that began on March 11 of 2011, she gets to observe what is really going on. In response to those recent stories in the media about the bullying of Fukushima children, she filed this report exclusively for Nuclear Hot Seat. This is Carrie Ann O'Connor, correspondent for Nuclear Hot Seat, reporting from Tokyo, Japan. When the 2011 disaster occurred, I started my volunteer work in the various disaster areas. I have met many victims along the way and have even worked with animals that were abandoned in the aftermath of the Fukushima meltdown. These animals I like to call the voiceless victims, but there is also another type of voiceless victims, and they are the children from these disaster stricken areas. The first time I came in contact with children was when I volunteered at an open cafe. There were many of these cafes spread all over Tohoku. Victims would come for coffee and tea, and volunteers would be there to listen to their stories and just keep them company. Part of the healing process for trauma is for the victims to talk about their experiences, pain, and anxiety. Usually, it's easier to talk to strangers than other victims. And some of these cafes had play areas for children. The day that I was requested to work at the cafe, I met three elementary school girls. First, they slammed the doors open without greeting anyone, flung their jackets on the ground, and stomped over to the toys. Well, me, being the mother of five children, couldn't tolerate this type of behavior, so I walked over to them and told them that that was not the way to enter a public building. Could they please shut the door and hang up their jackets? They had this, is she for real kind of look on their faces, and I said again, please shut the door and hang up your jackets. They went reluctantly and did what I asked them to do and then resumed playing. Of course, I was really shocked at their attitudes. Then they started running around the cafe and disrupting the other visitors. Again, I went over to them and brought them to a poster full of rules that was hanging on the wall, and I asked them to read the rules. One of the rules said no running, and I said, Well, now you know this rule, so I don't expect any more running around in the cafe. By now, the girls were getting irritated with me, and in a way, I could see them trying to defy me even more. They came to the table and took snacks without asking and threw the wrappers on the ground. Again, I went over and I said, Could you please ask first when you want a snack? And by the way, wrappers don't belong on the floor, they belong in the garbage. Again, the sighs and the rolling of the eyes. Well, the day progressed, and for every rude or improper thing they did, I would go over and reprimand them. This started to really eat at them, and they began calling me names. They called me Fat Butt and Alien since I came from the States. They also made fun of my Japanese. They said they couldn't understand me. I told them that they should never say things like that to people, especially. People they don't know and people that they've met for the first time. I also told them how bad that behavior made them look. 
and they just said, oh, we don't care. We don't need to look good. I really couldn't believe how rude and unfriendly these young girls were. At the end of the day, the volunteers get together and have a meeting to report on the day's events. And this is not just to relay information, but also a time for volunteers to release any kind of worries or tension. Sometimes we have to listen to extremely vivid stories about the day of the disaster. And this can also cause mental strain on volunteers. So at the meeting, I told everyone about the girls and how rude they were. I explained that I was really exhausted and a little overwhelmed by all the bad behavior. Some volunteers said that many of the children were like that and that it was a lack of discipline on the part of the parents. Apparently, the parents felt that the children had gone through so much trauma as a result of the disaster that they didn't have the heart to get angry at their children. Not only that, the parents and other adults wouldn't talk about the disaster with the children. So if a child walked into the room when the adults were talking about March 11th, the parents would right away hush up. This would make the child feel like the topic was taboo. So the children couldn't ask why they had to move far away from home or why a certain friend never came over to play anymore or why grandpa disappeared. These children had so many questions, but no one tried to talk to them. In a way, they were acting out in the only way they knew, and that was to release pent-up emotions away from the home towards people they didn't know or care about, mainly us volunteers. I have met many volunteers who were in tears because of the abuse they received from some of these children. These children would hit kick and use bad language, very violent behavior. And if a parent saw this, usually they would just laugh it off and say, oh, they're just being children. There was one time when a badly behaved boy, maybe seven years old, was playing ping pong. He was banging the paddle on the table and purposely trying to ricochet the ball off the walls of the cafe. I told him that that was not the proper way to play and asked him to stop. He did it again, and I told him I would give him one more chance. He gave me this defiant, are you watching look, and whammed the ping pong ball against the wall. I got up very calmly. I took the ball and paddle away and told him game over. The next day, I ran into him and his mom in town. He was so quiet and well-behaved, I was really shocked. When he saw me, he immediately looked down and pretended that I wasn't there. I went over and I introduced myself to the mother and said that I had met her son at the cafe the day before. She thanked me for my volunteer work and I told her that I looked forward to seeing her son again. The boy was like a different child in front of his mother. I thought, no wonder he needs to hit that ping pong ball so hard. He's been suffering from all sorts of suppression at home. And I think this is a problem with a lot of the children in the disaster areas. They really need to be in some kind of environment where they can feel comfortable and safe 
and know that they can talk to anybody and express how they actually feel. There was one time when an American child grief care counselor came to the cafe to give a lecture to the volunteers. And she said that the children's behavior was normal for disaster victims, but she was shocked that nothing was being done about it. She said that these children needed structure and discipline to help them get through their trauma. They also needed to be assured that speaking about the disaster was okay and that they should be encouraged to talk about events from that day that bothered them. When I volunteered at other areas, the local people were relieved to hear my story. They thought that this phenomenon with the children was only happening in their area. I have seen the same behavior in the tsunami, earthquake, and nuclear meltdown areas. So sadly, some of these children are still facing many problems. The bullying of Fukushima children is definitely a big topic now. And as these children enter their adolescent years, I think it's going to get even harder without some kind of outside intervention and support. Carrie Ann O'Connor reporting from Tokyo. This is the first in a series of on the ground at Fukushima stories that she will be providing in the coming months exclusively to Nuclear Hot Seat. Activist shout out! First, I've got to repeat it. Darren McClure, great catch with Google Earth and the pictures of San Onofre. This makes me wonder what Google's satellite photos might show of other reactor and nuclear problem sites. A new set of photos has been posted as of mid-March, so if you haven't already, now would be a great time to check out your local neighborhood nuclear disaster. You never know what you're going to find. And on Good Friday, April 14, at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, due east of San Francisco, a peaceful, mostly gray-haired crowd gathered to protest the lab's role in helping create military weapons. Organizers who hold this protest on Good Friday every year say they appreciate the lab and want it to thrive in the community, but wish it would change from nuclear weapons development to green energy. Though the protest was peaceful, 28 people were arrested. Good on all of you. Here's today's final thought. And it comes with a mild warning that what follows contains sexual allusions, though not profanity, and all the words are allowed by the FCC. How the blazes a 21,000-pound explosive device got to be conflated with motherhood makes the steam explode out of my ears. But Let Me Eat Cake Trump followed up on 59 Tomahawk missiles lobbed at Syria with a massive ordnance air blast bomb, M-O-A-B, Moab, which some twit in the Pentagon branding department labeled the mother of all bombs. Let me tell you, motherhood had nothing to do with it. With that phallic explosion, the dickless wonders in the White House got to jeer, my bang's bigger than your bang, like adolescent boys, using the destruction of lives, property, and heaps of American taxpayer dollars as a replacement for their inability to perform in the boudoir. 
mother of all bombs? Nah. This was an example of testosterone gone wild. My fear is that this is just part of an ongoing ramp-up to dropping the father of all bombs, meaning a nuke. As we become progressively more desensitized to bigger and more powerful weapons of war, it seems that it's only a matter of time before some genuine numbnuts decides that a nuke is just like any other bomb, only bigger. Ba-bam! And there goes the planet. Ain't no motherhood in that. Remember, the genuine father of the atom bomb, J. Robert Oppenheimer, watched the first atomic bomb explosion at the Trinity site in New Mexico. His first words upon viewing what he had done, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. He realized what he had done, and he never forgave himself. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. A planetary death wish that, should tiny fingers make it happen, will probably be live-streamed and posted to YouTube. And there ain't no motherhood in that. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 18, 2017. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from Japan Times, Environews.tv, Cape Cod Times, and the superb reporting of Christine Legere, DeUnRenard.wordpress.com, the psychonuclear apologists who sold their souls to write for World Nuclear News, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports, thanks to Erica Gray of the Sierra Club, and a shout-out to the big-hearted planet protectors and peaceful warriors who gather at the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site on Facebook and also the Nuclear Hot Seat podcast site on Facebook. Help me hit 2,000 likes by our sixth anniversary, which is coming up on June 14. Just go to the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site or the podcast site. What the heck? I don't know how I got two Facebook sites, but there you have it. Either way, go there and join, like, Share our posts with the people you really care about and those you really want to tick off. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. And a reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, delivered with as much humor and empathy as possible, take a moment to send a supporting donation to NuclearHotSeat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that the website Don't bankonthebomb.org will teach you how to peacefully fight back against nuclear weapons in the only way that really counts, in the bank accounts of the nuclear industry. So go there and take their simple action. There, you have all had your nuclear wake-up call. Now don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear.
Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are licking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.